One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. ESPN has the rights to a number of soccer properties, most notably in Europe, the Bundesliga and La Liga. And for those of you that are watching those leagues this season, you'll hear a familiar voice and one that has been prominent in the soccer world for many years, and that's the voice of Derek Ray. So in this week on the World Soccer Talk show, we're going to talk to Derek Ray about his career and uh, a couple of items that he's collected throughout his wonderful time covering World Cups, Champions League finals, everything of the sort. So we're going to pass it over to Derek and just get to know his career a little bit more and how it's transpired and what he looks forward to each day. I started very young. You mentioned the 1980s. I got my first professional break at the age of 19 in 1986 with the BBC in Scotland and I was very lucky but at the same time I had put in a tremendous amount of work as a young person. Now people will be asking how do you put in a tremendous amount of work as as a teenager but it was something I was driven to do. I really wanted to do it from a young age. I have tape recordings of myself as a seven-year-old in 1974 during the World Cup to prove that it was always something that was in certainly my heart and you know how do you become a a football commentator nobody knows there's not one set path but I did my own amateur work I did it with hospital radio Uh, I was commentating on games in the playground games in the park eventually at Pataudry Stadium my local ground the home of my local team Aberdeen in Scotland and quite simply through a burgeoning friendship with an established commentator, David Francie, I got my chance with the BBC at 19 when they needed somebody at short notice. And luckily I was able to walk through that door and that was the beginning of my professional career. And from there until now, it's been a winding road. It's actually been in Scotland on two separate occasions, my five years initially with the BBC before leaving for the USA in the early 90s, initially to take on the job of press officer for the World Cup organizing committee in Boston, which was a terrific insight into how the US media works. I I didn't really know, so I was learning that side of it on the job. And then with ESPN, my main broadcasting home, you would say, here in the USA since the early 1990s, again, Different spells with ESPN, but the most memorable time, certainly the Champions League years 
between the early 2000s and then when they lost the rights in 2009. And that prompted my return to the UK and to Scotland specifically, but based in London, working for ESPN UK and then BT Sports when they got off the ground. And it's always something special to start a new project with a brand new broadcaster as BT Sport was at that particular time. And then decided in 2017, for family reasons, we wanted to return to the USA. My wife is a Bostonian, and so we did that in 2017, not really knowing what opportunities would be back in the USA because I'd been away from the market for a long time. But I've really enjoyed my, so far, four years back working for... Not going to say everybody, but um, not too far short of that as a freelance broadcaster. Right. I've enjoyed being able to um, jump in, not just for ESPN, but for NBC and for Fox during the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup for Prime Video, even doing some NFL broadcasting because I was determined to try new things. And of course, probably my biggest client nowadays, EA Sports, as the commentator on the FIFA video game that probably one or two people have heard of. Um, so, yeah, it's been varied. And the one thing I always say to young broadcasters is put yourself out there and try different things at different stages of your career. The first thing, of course, is to get through that door, to be able to walk through the door and have your work out there. Your very best work must always be out there so that producers or editors who are listening can make a judgment based on your best work, not just your average work. Yeah, you already kind of touched on it, how you would pretty much commentate your own games at home. Um, it kind of spells out from an early age that this is something that you always wanted to do. So is that true? Is this, Was it always a dream of yours growing up that you wanted to get into commentating uh, soccer games? Well, it was my dream, and I didn't really know how you did it. And realistically, to be honest, I didn't think it was something that people did. You know, your next door neighbor wasn't a football commentator. Uh, your friend's dad wasn't a football commentator. So in those days, I think, you know, we had these dreams, but we never thought we would realize them. And I thought that I was probably going to end up being uh, a teacher of languages or an interpreter. That was maybe my more realistic dream because languages have always been something very dear to my heart. But I just kept talking to myself into these um, recording devices. And of course, we didn't have iPhones back then. We didn't have iPads. We had old-fashioned recording devices with physical tape. And that's what I used. And I still have some of those tapes back in my father's attic in Scotland. And it was just something that I did as a hobby and found it really rewarding and found actually that it helped all manner of things. My use of English, my confidence speaking, you know, little things like that. And I'm very grateful to, I mentioned him earlier, David Francie, who was my hero as broadcasters go. We all had heroes in terms of footballers, but he was the voice that I used to hear on the radio every week. And when I wrote a, a letter to him, I never in my wildest imagination thought I would get a reply, but lo and behold, I did. And it was a reply to, uh, to my letter. A tape was something that I had enclosed of my fledgling work. And he was yeah. very encouraging to me. And he said, uh, he said, just, you know, here are some ideas for you. I like what I hear. Uh, my voice hadn't broken at that point. I mean, I was 12 <laughs> yeah. or 13. You know, I was, no, I was just a, a squeaky voiced kid. But um, he gave me the, the, the hope and the belief to keep going. And then I did through hospital radio and then eventually got my chance as a professional. Yeah, languages are something that's interesting for soccer, especially just because, you know, it is, as we say, the world's game. And 
I told my friends I was interviewing Derek Ray, and you know they kind of said, "Well, I don't really know who that is. It's, they don't really follow soccer like we do." But I said, "You might know him as the voice of FIFA," and they say, "Oh, I definitely know who you're talking about them." And they wanted me to ask you about how you pronounce certain names. I think the most notable of those is how you say Bruno Fernandez, as a lot of people say, but you say Bruno Fernandez. If, if I'm getting that right, so could you just kind of talk about your pronunciation of languages and why you do that? Well, first of all, on Bruno Fernandes, to use the the way they say it in Portugal, I recorded that name long before he popped up in England yeah, for, for sure. FIFA. And I didn't hear uh, a beep out of anybody uh, <laughs> complaining about it until suddenly he goes to England and his name is not being said in that way. It's being said in an English way. Mm-hmm. So um, it sort of illustrates the point that, that I want to get it right and I want to be authentic, you know, Um I want my name to be pronounced correctly when I'm in a different environment. I think we all would have that goal, yeah. wouldn't we? You know, mm-hmm. it would be, be a bit strange if we said, no, um, in another country, they should say my name totally differently. No, you have a pronunciation of your name and it's very personal. Of course, it's influenced by my languages background because it was very clear to me as a young student, a student of broadcasting, let's say, that English commentators, and I'm using English here because I grew up in the UK and I was listening Mm -hmm. to English commentators, English commentators would routinely get German names wrong. And because I was a German student, I would know they were getting them not just wrong, but wildly wrong, you know, way off the mark. So um, as somebody who was studying German, I thought, well, I'm not going to get them wrong, you know, and um, it's just always been a goal of mine. I think it's basic respect. You know, why would we want to say a name wrongly? If we were talking about written journalists, would it be okay to just, in a lazy fashion, write down a player's name any old way and publish it that way? If you were writing an article, no, you wouldn't do that. So we are broadcast journalists. We are meant to have high standards. And I think part of those high standards is, as far as possible, getting names right. Now, there are occasions when it's very hard to get your tongue around a particular name. But I would suggest that Bruno Fernandes is not a particularly difficult name to say. It's just that, for whatever reason, in England, a decision was made that people didn't want to get that name right. And there are countless clips of the player himself saying his own name as he says it. So I think that's case closed, really. Yeah, you mentioned Germany. Um, as someone who pretty much only has a high school level experience of speaking Spanish, I can't even fathom uh, pronouncing all those all those difficult names that they have over there. But obviously, that's what you do a lot of now, especially for ESPN and the Bundesliga World Feed, is you call a lot of Bundesliga games. So I think it's no secret that there's a lot of tough names to pronounce over there, especially with the German language. But are there any names that have, that have stuck out in or coming out of Germany over your career right now or any time in the past, really? Yeah, I mean, I remember listening to the commentaries of the the great West German teams of the 1970s and the 1980s. And even, you know, little things like um, sometimes they get exaggerated. Sometimes people will take a name and actually, I think, in a bid to impress, will actually exaggerate how the name is is pronounced. I remember, you know, the great Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, who was a fabulous footballer before he was an executive. To younger people, he's probably best known as a Bayern executive, but he was one of the best strikers of his generation. And that's how he says his name, Rummenigge. But I would hear BBC commentators call him Rummenigge. You know what I'm saying? Well, no, there is no, there's no U. It's an U. It's a different, yep. um, different sound. Um, uh, Zepp Meyer, who was the goalkeeper, would often be called Meyer. You know, but it's Maya, M-A-I-E-R. And, um, you know, 
you can go down the list, as I said, and, and find countless examples of that. And, you know, even little things like, um, you know, the German name Michael, as in Michael Balak, um, it's Michael, it's not Michael, you know. Um, we don't, you know, we don't seem to do that so much with French or Spanish. You know, we're a bit more in the Anglo world, certainly in the USA. I think people are much more conscious of getting Spanish names right, maybe because Spanish is a language that is spoken more widely in the USA. But my attitude is, it's not just about the languages I speak, although obviously I have an advantage in terms of those languages, but it's about all languages and trying to show basic respect to, you know, if there's one Polish person who's watching a particular game and I'm pronouncing the name of a Polish player, I want that Polish person to say, oh, that commentator actually got our name right. Yeah, I think that also can apply to, to FIFA, which is one of the most popular video games in the world, and obviously you took over as the broadcast voice for that a couple of years ago, and personally, I play a lot of FIFA. I've played since FIFA 10, pretty much, uh, every year, and I'm really just interested in the logistics of it, because I feel like there's so many names, so many teams, so many scenarios that you have to pronounce, so I was wondering if you could just give like a little bit of a background insight into how that all functions, and how you're able to get all those different kinds of commentary out. Well, obviously, I've been doing it now since FIFA 19. So there's an existing bank of my work that we build on with each passing year. And it can be anything from names in basic tones to different contexts, new contexts, new scenarios within a game, whether it's a free kick that goes just over the top or goals or, you know, sometimes the more sort of routine things that happen in a game. But with regard to the names, we just try to sort of chip away at the names every so often. And I'll be given a, you know, a laundry list of names. And then it's really up to me to do my homework on finding the right pronunciation. That can be a challenge when you are dealing with, say, a 17-year-old player who's not yet established, who's maybe projected to be established in a few years um, in a country whose language I don't speak fluently. So that involves homework. And it gets ever more difficult now because I'm finding that players through their agents, and I think this comes sometimes from their agents, are having their names anglicized, I don't know, with their permission or without their permission, or sometimes they themselves are anglicizing their names. So they're not actually giving you what their name is in their own culture. Uh, from, for the most part, they do. But there are one or two examples of, for example, Zayad Kolasinac, you know, who um, has bounced around, well, mostly Schalke to Arsenal, mm-hmm. gave a very different name when he went to England. And in fact, the pronunciation he gave in England was one that he had sort of scoffed at a few months before when he'd heard people in Germany say it that way. But he sort of went with it, I think, on the advice of his agent. And as you can imagine, I don't like that at all because... Most people can pronounce a name if they are told what the name is. It's just that laziness does creep in. And the the Anglo world often makes a decision about what a name is going to be without really asking the player. And I always think that's kind of borderline unforgivable. Yeah, do you reckon they anglicize these names at all just because it'll help the player's brand grow and maybe get them some kind of big contract at a big club where all the fans will be able to know this player or recognize this player down the road or anything like that? Maybe? I can't get into the head of somebody who would want to do that because, as I said to you before, Kyle, you know, names are personal. And, yeah. you know, if somebody, if somebody started calling me Derek Rai, which sometimes people do, I'll very quickly say, no, it's Ray. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. You know, and then, and then that's, uh, that's the issue taken care of. Um, you know, if, if somebody called you Fainsler instead of 
Fanslow. You they probably would. Uh, they could be surprised how often my my name gets butchered in all kinds of uh, different ways and variations. Yeah, well, and, and and we all go through that. But the point is that it's quite easy for somebody to to get right. it right. And yeah. and I think you know that is, as I said before, basic respect for other cultures, for other languages. Basic respect for people is to get those names right. But yeah, they, on the FIFA game, it certainly is a lot of work going through all that. And there will be times when I'll make a correction because maybe I was led you know, down the wrong path. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming that, that there's 100% perfection on this at all um, because it is a bit of a minefield. But the main thing is to make that honest effort and to arrive at a conclusion having gone through that process. Yeah, and before we get into the actual items that you brought in today, Derek, I just want to get to know your career a little bit more. Um, you've got an, a ridiculous resume and rap sheet. I mean, you've covered World Cups, Women's World Cups, Champions League Finals, all kinds of different Cup Finals. Is there anything that stands out among all those different kinds of games that you've covered? And it's a pretty extensive list, but is there anything that's really you know jumped out for you in your career? Well, I've been very lucky because I've been involved with every World Cup since 1990. Um, and, you know, I, I'm always happy when I can keep that run going. And when you look at the World Cups, it's difficult to separate them because even though if you talk to fans, they'll say, well, this World Cup was better than that World Cup, which was better than this World Cup. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to commentators, of course, we all have our own memories of those World Cups. And so it might not just come down to what was the best World Cup from the point of view of the standard of play. It might be our own experience of that World Cup and that country and the things that we did, um, you know, aside from the the actual games or, or maybe individual commentaries that we did within those World Cups. So um, it's difficult for me really to, to sort of say, you know, this was better than this that was, and, and this was better than that. But um, I've been very lucky to have covered, you mentioned this, to have covered such a wide variety of football. And I've always been determined to be that commentator. I've never really wanted to be just doing one thing, one league, you know, three or four teams over and over and over again. I've got a lot of very good friends who've, you know, made their lives covering the Premier League week in, week out, year in, year out um, for decades. I've never wanted to do that. I've never wanted to be the, the commentator who has, who has just done that. I've wanted to to be involved in, in many different leagues. And as I said, I've, I've had that opportunity through ESPN to a large extent. You know, when we started back in the 90s, it was the Dutch League, it was the Brazilian League, it was the Champions League as well, which was in its very early stage of development. Previously, we'd always just called it the European Cup. Scottish football, which of course is always, you know, right here and will always be right here as a Scot. Um, the Bundesliga, which is very similar because I discovered it very early on as a young person learning German, and, and that is part of me as well. So if you can cover football that's part of you, I think you become a better commentator. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the World Cups, I've always felt going into them that um, in comparison with my friends who, who work, say, just on the Premier League, I've had a bit of an advantage because I've been seeing other leagues down the years, and I think now it's perhaps a bit different because the Premier League is becoming ever more omnipotent, let's say, um, all-powerful. But it wasn't always the case. And if you just restricted yourself to the Premier League, you'd go, go into a World Cup genuinely not knowing a lot of the players, you know, because maybe you hadn't seen them. Um, so the world is changing. 
But um, I think if we were to look at, you know, specific events, well, we could get into that. But um, the Champions League years with ESPN were very special. And, you know, I was blessed to be the, the lead commentator during that period from around 2003 until 2009. And every final just had an amazing story. Yeah, I think one of the most memorable finals that happened in that span that you just mentioned happened in 2005, as we know. Liverpool with that dramatic comeback against AC Milan. Am I right to assume that was one of the most dramatic finals that uh, you've ever seen and covered? You're right to make that assessment. And I think we knew as it was unfolding that we were narrating an event that would stand the test of time and then some. And what you have to remember about that final is it was 3-0 to Milan at halftime. Milan were the cream of the European crop. Liverpool... Not the Liverpool that we know now. They were a bit of a ragtag and bobtail Liverpool. You know, they had the tradition, they had the history, but this was not a Liverpool team that at that point really was, you know, even top two or top three in England. And they somehow had got to the final. I thought they were probably going to lose to Milan. And when it was 3-0 at halftime, then, you know, that view was reinforced. And Mm -hmm. I'll freely admit I was looking at my notes, making sure I had in my head what the biggest margin of victory was or had (laughs) been in a European final. Because I genuinely thought it could get very ugly. Yeah. But then the comeback of all comebacks. And I had a listen to it recently. Somebody for a podcast wanted me to have a listen back to it for a, a project that he was doing. And... I'm amazed listening back, actually, how fresh it, it, it sounds to my ears, uh, even now, 16 years on. And it was a commentator's dream, because you, you can't go wrong with material like that. Liverpool coming from 3-0 down to, to draw 3-3 um, to extra time. And then this penalty shootout with Jerzy Dudek, who essentially did his best Bruce Grobelar impersonation. And this is really where this is where homework comes in. Um, I had, of course, seen Grobelar. For people who don't know, Grobelar was the Liverpool goalkeeper uh, in the final against Roma. So we're going back two decades, even before 2005. Mm -hmm. And he had essentially done this sort of spaghetti-legged, jelly-legged act to put off the, the Roma players. And, you know, I'd seen it and I'd made note of it just before the game, thinking, who knows, you know, when this is going to come into play again. And of course it did. Dudek, it turned out, had been watching videos of Grobelar. So he'd been doing his own sort of commentator-style preparation (laughs) for this final. And uh, if you ever, I don't know whether it's even freely available, but I listened back recently, and and one of my references in that penalty shootout is, as we got the close-up of Dudek, I said, I wonder if he's been watching videos of Bruce Grobelar from all those years ago. And then, of course, he comes up with, especially the save against Shevchenko, to, to win the Champions League for Liverpool. And I remember thinking, as a commentator, that is where the preparation really comes in. You yeah. know, I, if, if you didn't know about that, uh, you, you may not have, you just would have thought, okay, there's, you know, Dudek making a save. But, um, you know, sometimes we get that right, sometimes we get it wrong. But I'm so thrilled that my voice has that reference on it, on the live call of the game. And... Honestly, it will go down for me as as the greatest European final ever. And I said to Tommy, my partner afterwards, I said, I I don't think this will be topped in our lifetime. And he said, I I agree. And here we are. I don't think it's been topped um, in in certainly my lifetime up to now. In my mid-50s, I've still hopefully got many years left. But it's going to take something special, let's just say, to top that for a European final. Yeah, the Grobelar little 
factoid? Is that something that you found in your research, or is that something that's just stored up in your memory bank? Stored up on my memory bank, because um, I think when you do a, a Champions League final, you are conscious of history. And, yeah. you know, obviously, probably to you, it seems as though that was, you know, five centuries ago, uh, what Robolar <laughs> did. But to me, I, I remember where I was watching that um, very penalty shootout. I was mm-hmm. actually in Germany as an exchange student watching it with the family I was staying with in Germany. And, and that stays with me to this day. And um, obviously, it's been written about a lot since. And, you know, I, I read a lot of football books, too. So it was something going into the final. You know, Liverpool famously didn't even practice penalties ahead of that final, yet came out on top. So I was thinking about all these themes going into into the final. And, um, you know, people weren't really writing a lot about Dudek copying Grobelar, but obviously it had been etched in Liverpool folklore, um, that particular penalty shootout win. Yeah, I'll wrap up the CD with this. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, do you have any other CDs or recordings of any of your other previous games, or was just the 2005 Champions League final was that special and that memorable that you, you had to hold on to it? I don't have many. I'm a really terrible collector of things. Um, I tend to collect things that are useless, and and I don't collect the things that are meaningful. A lot of that goes back to the days, for example, photographs. I have no photographs of anything that I did in the 80s, really, or in the 90s. -hmm. And it was because in those days we didn't have camera phones. We didn't have, you know, ease of access to cameras. And quite honestly, it wasn't very cool to be carrying a camera around your neck. Um, You know, people sort of said, oh, no, just tourists do that. You don't want to be one of those uncool tourists. So uh, I never had a camera with me. And and I so wish now I, I had some of the the visual um, memories um, from that period, the, the 80s and the 90s. But I, I have a few, but but that one I had to make a special request for. You can actually see on the, um, on, on, on the DVD ESPN duplication services on the top. So that was something <laughs> that it wasn't um, freely available. I had to make a special request to a particular person at ESPN uh, because I knew it was something that I wanted to keep for eternity. Yeah, I think it's hard to blame me for wanting to uh, immortalize that game. But uh, is there anything else you got for me? I know you got uh, two or three more things. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sort of staying more recent, again, because my collection, I could have given you something from the, the 80s or 90s, but yeah, I, I just, just, didn't, just didn't collect things. But, but this is one here, and, mm-hmm. and you'll see this. That's an accreditation badge from the, the World Cup in 2010. And I have to say, um, with these accreditation badges, you'll see uh, it has my name, it has my organization, ESPN. And it also has um, Derek Ray Scotland, and you might think that's a small, a small point, but um, I always get tremendous pride when I see Scotland associated with my name, um, which maybe tells you a little bit about me and who I am. I'm from a small country. Um, I haven't lived there permanently for a long time. I was back working there, obviously, a lot in the 2010s, but um, I will always be a Scot. You know, I'll always be a Scot first and foremost, even though, uh, you know, I've lived, as I said, in other places. But um, to see that, it always tickles me when I see that, when I pick up the accreditation badge and I see Derek Ray, Scotland. Um, But this one is from the South Africa World Cup. And I've chosen this one in particular because even though I've traveled a lot and I've been very lucky to travel a lot, I had never been to Africa prior to that World Cup in South Africa. And... I found the whole experience magical. Mm-hmm. I just found it. It opened my eyes to uh, to just a different interpretation of the world, to different cities, to different landscapes. 
and I couldn't get enough of it, honestly. Um, it was a slog, that World Cup, in terms of the travel, because we were mostly in this van with um, my co-commentator, who was Robbie Musto, uh, with our producers and with a security person who was with us all the time. And we just drove up and down this country that I was discovering as we were broadcasting the World Cup. And, you know, first World Cup in Africa was always going to be special. And the games I had, and I mentioned this to you earlier on, sometimes as a commentator, you have great games, you have not such great games. I didn't have great games in that World Cup. Mm. I mean, the games were, I think I counted out the number of goals. I think from my 10 games, I might have had 10 goals in the 10 games. Not a great ratio there. No, there were nil-nil draws galore. There were there were scrappy one-nil wins. Um, it, it it was not a lucky World Cup for me from the point of view of of goals that were scored. But this just shows you the fact that I picked out South Africa it was more to me symbolic. I had um, read a lot about Mandela uh, as a young student. Mandela had been somebody who, to me, was very inspirational, and I think that was a big part of it was being able to sort of live this Mandela story and, and put it more into context. And, and actually, the, the last thing I did uh, before leaving South Africa, before returning home, was I bought Mandela's book and I devoured it on the long flight back. Yep. And uh, I still have it in the, the cabinet just, uh, just behind where I'm talking to you from now. I think I speak for a lot of people when we say those World Cups, 2010 and 2014, were just a different kind of experience. I mean, yeah, we had the those European World Cups, 2006, and most recently 2018 in Russia. But, I mean, looking at 2010 and 2014, those were just a different kind of experience for everybody. I mean, as we're looking back on them, they're more fun, and the, the fan experience is more just more energy. And uh, it's just made it more enjoyable as a fan watching from home. I think so. Uh, I, I think this is... One of the, the beautiful things about the World Cup, and honestly, it's why um, you probably would guess this, you know, talking to me, it's why I, I don't want the four-year cycle ever to change for the World Cup. I can remember every World Cup since 1974. That was my first one, when the magic of it really um, was there on my TV screen for the first time. And it sparked an interest in, in Germany and, and German culture. And I can go through every World Cup, Kyle, and I can remember all the games. I can remember all the key games, 74, 78, 82, 86. If we had it every two years, I don't think we would be in a position of remembering every game. Yep. And I, I think it would dilute it. I think it would make it just another World Cup. And frankly, I think we would quickly get to the stage um, where certain countries would say we're fielding a B team in that World Cup, or historically we'll, we would look back and say, yeah, that's the World Cup where Team X sent a, a B or a C team. And we would say it without any concern or any irony. It would just be normal. But to me, the World Cup is on a pedestal, and I think we should fight to keep it on that pedestal. And I'm not convinced that by diluting it, by having it every two years, it would be on the, the same pedestal yeah on that same topic when the world cup comes to the united states in 2026 they're they're upping the teams to to 48 which is i mean they've consistently increased the number of teams in the tournament do you think that has a similar impact on making the world cup itself more frequent and that it takes away from some of the the grandeur some of the prestige of the world cup uh, that we know and love well I'm, I'm gonna sort of hold fire on that one just because I remember when the World Cup was a much smaller affair. Mm -hmm. I remember when it was 16 teams, and then it went to 24, and then to 32.
telling me, well, if you make it bigger, it's gonna, it's it's not gonna be good anymore. Yeah. And and I don't know that it has made it significantly worse going from 16 to 24 to 32. Mm-hmm. And I do think also it's the World Cup, and there's part of me that believes that when it comes to the World Cup, then the world should be there. And I think, and I'm probably speaking as a, as a European here, but I've always thought for European countries, and I come from one that used to, used to qualify for the, uh, for, the, for the World Cup every single time when I was growing up, 74, 78, 82, 86, 90, and then again, 98. But hasn't since then, you know, I, I think there's a strong case to be made that certain parts of the world are underrepresented and certain parts are overrepresented. So if the way to get around that is to have more teams going, then I can understand that argument more. So I'm less bothered about that than I am about the the idea that it should be every two years. To me, it should be every four years, and that keeps it special. Yeah, you mentioned Scotland. Obviously, they're trying to get back to the World Cup. Had that, that pretty dramatic win against uh, Israel, uh, you know, so things looking up for them, perhaps. But uh, any more items you brought in today? Uh, one or two more things maybe to show the audience we got here today? Yes, I've got um, two more from okay. 2017, which was I'm, – I'm going I'm to just show you these with you quickly. And, okay. Um, this is um, a program from Aberdeen, my uh, home club in my home city. And um, it was Aberdeen against Celtic from 12th of May 2017. And the reason I'm sharing this one is that it was my very last game as a commentator in my home stadium. And when Celtic come, it's always a big occasion. We had the game live on BT Sport. I knew that within two or three weeks, I'd be leaving the job completely to return to the US. My choice, but still, it was emotional. Yeah. What I didn't know was that the club had a special presentation lined up for me because I always go. They knew that I always go into the tunnel area to look for the manager and some of the players who I know beforehand to just get little tidbits of information. Mm-hmm. And um, lo and behold, the manager Derek McInnes one of the, the longest-serving Aberdeen managers, was there waiting for me with uh, an, an Aberdeen FC bottle of whiskey, their own brand of Scotch whiskey, single malt, and just a lovely little note that had been signed by everybody saying, um, we're going to miss you. Yeah. you know? And, you know, that may seem like, uh, you know, not much to people who are not um, Scottish or not from Aberdeen, but um, it's, you know, where my football heart is, as I said before, and that's where it all started for me. So to have the club do that little thing for me on my last night, something that I'll remember forever. Yeah, the whiskey, is it one of those bottles that you actually consumed, or is it a more of a relic that you like to uh, to look at every now and then? It's the latter. It's one that uh, I have not consumed, and I think it's just nice to to save it and nice mm-hmm. to have as I mentioned earlier I'm a very bad collector of things so I was <laughs> determined to to make sure that that one didn't uh, didn't get poured down the drain that's good well uh, any more items you brought in today yeah also from 2017 okay um, so this is another match program this is the Dortmund match program and it's the match program you can probably see there um, from uh, does it actually have the um, yeah here we go but yeah Schalke's down there, down there. yeah Bay Schalke it's my favourite derby in the world, and I've been lucky enough to be there for it on site for the Bundesliga's World Feed on several occasions. And little did I know on, what day was it? November 25th, 2017. I was back in Germany, so I moved back to the USA, but one of my first assignments back in Europe was in Germany, in Dortmund. And you always go into Dortmund Schalke expecting 
bizarre stuff and being ready for the historical side of it because there have been you know many weird and wonderful historical notes that have cropped up in that game. It's just you know a bonkers kind of fixture. And yep. as I said, for me, the, the greatest derby in the world. But little did I know that I was going to be broadcasting maybe the greatest Revilla derby of all time. And this one goes almost down there on the same level as Liverpool-Milan, but Liverpool-Milan beats it because it was a Champions League final. This was Dortmund-Schalke, 4-0 to Dortmund at halftime. And again, you're thinking it's going to be, you know, 5-6-7-0. What does Schalke do in the second half? They gradually eat away at Dortmund's lead. 4-1, 4-2. You're thinking, okay, 4-2, but it's still impossible. Mm-hmm. 4-3, <laughs> with a couple of minutes remaining. Well, yeah. and then into stoppage time, and Naldo heads home the goal that makes it 4-4. Brazilian defender for Schalke. And the play, the Schalke fans just go absolutely mental. Yeah, but the game was at the Signal Iduna Park in Dortmund, right? So I imagine all those fans were head in hands during that entire second half comeback down 4 nothing. It was, but the reason I mentioned the Schalke fans is that for a derby like that, you have 7,000 Schalke fans in attendance, mm-hmm. and they're all over on the corner just away to the right of the commentary position. So it was all getting really quiet around us where the Dortmund fans were, and the, the yellow wall was, was much quieter than usual. And the Schalke fans sensed they were onto something. And to make it 4-4 like that, in for me, is the greatest derby in the world. And to be able to commentate on that, and the line I used was, you know, quite simply, I said, this is why they call it the mother of all derbies. <laughs> and, and again, it's just, it's something that um, was an immense privilege to commentate on. Yeah. And it came from that um, year of change for me in 2017, when I just moved back and mentioned the Aberdeen um, uh, gift that I was given before uh, but that was also a gift uh, mm-hmm. to have a game like that and uh, it'll stay with me forever for sure well Derek I really appreciate you coming on I thought those were some uh, great items you showed and uh, I wish you the best going forward in uh, not really knowing what your next game uh, next game might be as a freelance commentator thanks Kyle pleasure to talk to you Very appreciate it have a good one Derek see catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 